You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. So Shelby's been a part of our community for uh, several years. Um, I remember when I first met her. Um, you know, this will be recorded on the internet. I just want you to know. But I like, I, 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 I like a little camera. Well, unless you need to. I mean, I understand no, if you need I, to. I do not. You know when I officiate weddings, I control the cameras in the room. I often say, you'll put away your phones. You can't have it. I'm a little too, I'm way too aggressive. Needlessly, usually. Anyway, Shelly and I have been friends for a long time. And I've, uh, she's, she's uh, grown and moved in a lot of ways. She's led us in a variety of ways. She's a cell leader now. She serves as a cell leader coordinator. And now she works for the Defender Association. So let's, ha- let's bring her up. Clap for Shelby. <laughs> so, we're going to start with the basics here. Um, we'll only have about a 20, 25 minute conversation and then we'll open it up to everybody. Um, do, you have, do you have anything more you want to say about yourself? Tell us what the Defender Association is. Um, so, first of all, is this fine? Or no, I'd you kiss it almost, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Hold it. Is this fine? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, one thing I want to say off the bat is that, this sounds so stupid, but I'm just speaking for myself. This is not a representation of the organization. Um, Same Um, So the Defender Association is the Public Defender's Office, um, and we represent 70% of all indigent criminal clients in Philadelphia County. So the majority um, of people who can't afford legal counsel come to our office um, for representation. So you work for like the Public Defender, you could say, too. Yeah, and sometimes people, because, you know, Defender Association is DA, people will be like, oh, you work for the district attorney, and it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. That is confusing. So again, that the two DAs, they're different. So you don't exactly represent them because you're not an attorney. Tell us how you work with these clients. So, um, yeah, I get the question all the time, like, what do social workers do at a law firm? And it's actually really, really important for there to be social workers to kind of triage um, because there's so much distrust in both directions. So clients don't trust attorneys. Attorneys don't trust clients, even if they're oriented to the defense. Um, so there needs to be somebody who's like person-centered, trauma-informed, um, helping move things along. So like, for example, no, I do not. I'm not like barred in Pennsylvania. I'm not an attorney. So, but I do go to court and I, I get sworn in and I testify on the record and stuff like that. Or sometimes the judge will bring me up to sidebar to ask me something. Um, based on my knowledge of the client, because I do know a lot more than the attorney does generally, because I just spend more time with them, especially because the client might not meet the attorney until the day they're in court. So then the attorney just has this long list of clients and they call them out and they're like, is so-and-so here? And Wow, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, it, it is. So, so I'm like the continuity of care. I'm the person who's been there since the beginning because they might have gone through a couple different attorneys depending on if they have like violations of probation or something like that. And you also say that you advocate for your clients. Tell us what that kind of advocacy looks like um, based on what you do and what even might happen to them if you weren't there. 
Um, yeah, so from like a practical standpoint, um, it's also important to have somebody with clinical skills there because um, there's so much crossover between uh, people with severe mental illness and people in the criminal justice system. Like 80% of my clients are schizophrenic. Um, I have a lot of clients with bipolar 1, schizoaffective disorder. Um, and so it's really important, like for example, I had a client the other day that told me that they were on antidepressants and then I asked just standard questions about um, AV, about audio, visual hallucinations, and um, he mentioned that he, you know, talks to someone regularly. And then I said, "Did you speak to your psychiatrist about this?" And he said, "No." So then I was like, "I need your consent to call your psychiatrist right now because you should not be on an antidepressant. Um, you should be on an antipsychotic, and an antidepressant can actually be very dangerous for you." Um, and it's the type of thing where if I hadn't caught that, um, that could have been bad. Or like I've been in custody. Um, I go to the jails a lot too on State Road. Um, so I was in custody interviewing a client, um, and he expressed a lot of suicidality to me, um, and I was the one who told the CO to put them on suicide watch. So it's like, if I hadn't come that day, like, hopefully so they would have been fine. The work you're doing um, affects their very livelihood. Um, and also you were telling me if a, a client was uh, running late because they missed their bus or their bus was running late, they could have gotten a bench warrant without mm -hmm. you being there, right? Oh yeah, that's the other thing where it's really important for me to be in court is like I said, the attorney doesn't know them until the day of, um, so they're just calling off on a list, just no faces to names. So if they'll call, because there's also no way to tell when your client's gonna be there, you just have to show up at nine and your client could be called at like 1 p.m. So it's like you kind of make like a whole morning of it. Um, so if they call off the client's name and they're not there, I'll stand up and be like, if I may, Your Honor, um, I'm the client's social worker and I just got off the phone with them, their bus was delayed and they'll be here in 10 minutes. And then they'll continue it instead of just, because they literally go down the list and they're like, fail to appear, fail to appear, fail to appear, and then they get bench warded. Yeah. Um, and then there's a warrant out for their arrest. So it's like, it's really truly like if I wasn't there, they would have just skipped it instead of continuing it for like 30 minutes. So without you there, it's hard to have like a due process um, effectively in people who are stuck in a systemically kind of oppressive situations, um, essentially get taken advantage of. Um, All the time. And in order to do your work, because you, you work with people who uh, are at least charged with crimes, and sometimes they could be unsavory crimes that um, most of us would be maybe even intimidated to be around people like that for. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I, I think your job needs a lot of compassion. What other skills do you think that, um, or gifts even, you have or that you need to have to do this kind of work? Um, it requires compartmentalization. <laughs> um, you have to compartmentalize um, and see them as a whole person, which for me um, comes quite naturally, which is like why I'm good at this. Like I wouldn't. If that's hard for you, like take a different job, sort of thing. You have to see it as a whole person. Um, yeah. Um, so, for example, I do a lot of mitigation reports. So there's litigation, which is, you know, the legal process, and then mitigation, which is like a biopsychosocial assessment of them starting before they were born. So I'm like subpoenaing hospital records, like were they withdrawing from anything when they were born, like whatever, 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 and you go through their entire life. So. I've had clients that are like Megan's law clients, um, meaning that they're registered sex offenders, and then you find out 100% of sex offenders were sexually abused, like all of them. So it's like you build that profile 
or like they failed out of every single grade, where it's like, okay, if they had an intellectual disability, they have the legal right to like in-class supports. So like, why were they just left hanging and then they failed every single grade and then just stopped at the sixth grade because like their parents couldn't afford to move them around anymore, um, if the parents were um, able to even move them at all. So maybe it was like they failed once and then that was it. So um, it's important to look at the whole picture, which is just like a very social worky thing. It's like, you know, um, person and environment perspective and um, that sort of thing. Like for me, based on my schooling, it makes sense, but attorneys just aren't trained that way. They don't see them as all people the same. Not always. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them do, but it's just completely different training. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, you know, you said a lot of people ask you, why are you a, a social worker at a law firm? Talk about that. Um, You've touched on it a little bit, but we can elaborate more. Yeah, so um, I kind of fell into it in terms of um, doing this line of work in the legal setting. Um, and I actually love it. I, my background um, is with children my whole life. I was a nanny for five years. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you missed nanny. That, that's the face of being. It's not the children uh, are hurting you. No, I just love babies so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love babies so much. Um, okay, I need to get you. Um, <laughs> so um, my background is with children, um, and now I'm with adults. So that's a pretty stark difference. Um, and it's really interesting um, putting together plans. So I do a lot of like reentry planning um, and petitions for early parole. So. Um, it's really rewarding because I'm like literally getting people of color out of jail. So um, if, like I had a client um, who was arrested for prostitution, which all of that sentence is a problem, obviously. Um, and I was able to get her out in eight days, actually, which never yeah. happens. That's like, that's not the norm. That was, the judge was feeling generous or something. Because um, the DA is, is bound to reply to your EPP or early parole petition within 10 days, but the judge can take as long as they want. So sometimes the client is just sitting. Like there's nothing holding them, and they're just sitting because the judge needs to sign off. And different judges are different, so it's like, you know the deal. Like if a client has a certain judge, you're like, well, this will be a while. Um, but I was able to get her out um, in eight days because I put together a reentry plan that had, um, you know, like a housing plan, anger management. Uh, drug and alcohol treatment, uh, actually co-occurring, because um, she has some mental health stuff going on too, so. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, I think that's pretty good. Um, we're talking about why you would ha have a social worker at a law firm. Um, you, are sort of, you also said the most rewarding thing about your job was helping get people of color out of jail. Are most of the clients people of color? <laughs> yes. And, you, and, and, and a high percentage of them also suffer with mental illness. And so, you, yes? So, yeah, so the funny thing is, like, if you look at a court docket and you see a charge like terroristic threats, you can almost always assume that that's a schizophrenic person who's just cursing in public. Mm. Like, terroristic threats is not like acts of terrorism. Those are different things. Terroristic threats is just like cursing loudly. Um, huh. So, yeah. There, it's like, it's just like, there's so many traps. Yeah. And then uh, POs are so quick to violate. So I try to have like really close relationships with parole and probation officers as well. They're so quick to cite a violation? <clears throat> they violate, well, not all of them, but some violate people like really, really quickly. 
So it's important to like kind of be in their back pockets as well, have that in mind. So I think your clients trust you because of your training and your experience. Um, do you, what's your experience working with uh, clients of color as a person of color? How does that affect you? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, just social work in general, it's, it's important to be that, that person in the middle, but it's also like you can't fake um, like trustworthiness. Like people trust you or they don't. And you know, they're incredibly street smart. You know what I mean? So that's, that, that was, a, I think, a racialized way to say that. I didn't mean that. But my point is like, they can spot a real one from a mile away. So it's like, if I come into jail with like my little blazer and I'm like, whatever, 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 um, it's, I just get real like immediately. So um, I'll just come right, I'm just completely myself. And sometimes clients actually um, are really complacent and don't wanna leave. Um, which I was surprised to learn is a pretty common thing. So like, I'll have I'll come in like with all this stuff ready. I'll have like this whole plan, and they'll be like, I'm just gonna like I'm good. I'm just gonna wait until my minimum in six months because I'm kind of like loving my life. Like I have some clients who are like kingpins on their block, mm -hmm. um, and there there's like a hierarchy, and they're like on the top, so they're like living a dream. Um, and I try to like disenchant them. Sorry. That's a good word to use. So I'll be like, listen, like you shouldn't have been here in the first place. This entire system is racist and you're here because you're a black man. And they'll be like, wait, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So like I go in there like really real right away and I also think I just have this like, um, people open up, like not just clients, like in general, people open up to me really quickly and they tell me like very deep things about themselves. Really and they tell you early. things they don't tell their attorney too. Oh yeah, the attorney sometimes will, like the attorney that interviews them first, not, and that won't be the same attorney that's actually with them in court, but like just the attorney who's like on um, rotation that day to like interview the clients who come in, will get like this little blurb and then I'll go in and I'll get like everything else because they don't really tell the attorney anything. And they trust you. And they trust me. And um, you would also say, also because of your skin color, right? Yeah. There's a connection yeah. that counts. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I think it's helpful that there's so much representation of people of color at the public defender's office. Like our chief defender is a black woman and like my boss is a black man. And like I'd say like, mm, like 70% of the people in my unit are people of color. And just generally in the whole building, there's a lot of people of color. Um, but I have noticed sometimes that clients will, like sometimes clients will jump around if somebody has to like move caseload or something like that and I'll get a client that was um, held by a white person and like I get more. Oh yeah, that makes sense. From them. Well, so you talked about the most rewarding thing about your job. What do you think the hardest thing is? Um, one thing that's weird, it's kind of actually related to the last question, but it's also really weird going to State Road because um, the prisons, or they're not prisons, they're jails. So, um, but it's called like the Philadelphia Department of Prisons and the, the words are kind of used interchangeably, but they're like county jails, not federal prisons. Not federal prisons. Um, but it's like a campus of jails on State Road. So it's weird because it's in the Northeast, it's Holmesburg Junction, um, which is very white. And then you like cross the threshold and it's like all people of color. So it's like they're all sequestered in like this weird little like place um, where all the jails are. And they're kind of far apart. So it's like they're all in the same place but you have to walk 
a pretty good distance between all of them, especially the women's prison. and RCF is like all the way in the back. Um, so that's like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, uh, in some ways, like I said, it's, it's, it's nice to feel like I'm actually doing something because the work that I'm doing is like literally changing things, which is really, I think, kind of rare. Um, but then it's also hard to all, still feel like I'm caught in these weird systems that I can't change right now. But you, and, and you see the injustice, um, kind of the systemic oppression, and then the uh, systemic racism really close. And even, oh, yeah. even in on State Road, you see the, the It's the so bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's bizarre. I am completely comfortable walking around within the campus, and then like the second I step foot out, I'm like very nervous. <laughs> like I, I'm like- As a person of color? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's like, you know, oh wait, I don't have like exact change for the train, so, because I don't have like a ticket, so I'm going to have to give them $6 or whatever for a regional rail, and so I'll walk to like a Dunkin' Donuts or something, and it's very like, a very sore thumb-ish, so I'm just like, uh, I can relate to some of that. Yeah. So can we talk about Krasner? Sure. So Larry Krasner is the new district attorney in Philadelphia. He's a real progressive. We're all hooting and hollering in the streets like mad people when he got elected because we thought, you know, the injustice would end. Um, tell us about that. Has Krasner made your job easier? Um, do you feel the effects of, uh, of Larry Krasner? Um, how does it work? What do you think the impact is? Because you're right there on the front line of mm -hmm. this, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously Krasner's win was a win for the city. That was, you know, a good thing. Um, but it's still the prosecution, so the DA's office and the Fraternal Order of Police are like super tight, um, which, read that how you want to. Um, well, I'm reading it. Oh, oh you're reading it. <laughs> um, and, oh, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done still. Um, you know, he has a civil rights background, um, like he was a civil rights attorney, which is awesome. It's so much better than it was, but it's still, um, you know, the ADAs, the assistant um, district attorneys are still putting out for like 10 to 20 year sentences and we're arguing 10 to 20 like federal sentences and we'll start, we're, we're still arguing for like 11 and a half to 23 months in county with like immediate parole to like therapy. <laughs> like we're still like, what they need is like diversion. They need to be engaged in treatment for the first time in their lives because they were never given the therapy that they deserved when they were a kid or whatever. Um, and it's still like 10 to 20. Um, but one thing that is a really good thing that's come from Krasner's, um, um, starts with a C, Krasner's, um, uh, oops, um, nope, it's not a C, it's administration. <laughs> it's an A. Um, one good thing that's come from Krasner's administration is um, he put into place this mandate where um, the Commonwealth, um, which is the DA, when, when the Commonwealth is recommending um, a sentence, they are required to state on the record how much it's going to cost to incarcerate that individual. Um, like money? Yes. Like, if they're like 10 to 20 years, they have to state on the record how many millions of dollars it's going to cost. Um, so that's just, I mean, that's revolutionary. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, but I'm not, I'm not uh, like whistling in the dark. 
it's still like it's still it, there's a lot of work to do. There's still systemic oppression. Prosecution is still prosecution. Um, yeah, it's still prosecution, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was listening to a radio interview um, with the president of the FOP, mm -hmm. who thinks. Everything's all loose now because of Krasner. He's talking about how the cops' morale is real low, and you know they're just letting everybody out, out of jail. Basically, is how he framed it. Yeah, and so the uh, the progress is hard because every step you take, someone's resisting it and kind of hyper, uh, hyperbolizing it so that your work is even harder because that's in the public um, sphere. People believe that, right? That, that there isn't injustice happening. And in fact, the injustice happening is how uh, easy we, uh, we get taken on criminals or something like that. You yeah. know? So it's illuminating to see that, no, it's still incremental work. Mm -hmm. But he was obviously, oops, he was obviously the best candidate. Um, yeah. And like, this is a good thing. It is a history of public defense. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. He's, yeah. So, We'll end with this question. What do you think, um, how, we'll, go, we'll go bigger. What do you think Christians at large need to learn from your experience working at the Defender Association? And then what do you think uh, Circle of Hope specifically might learn from it? Can you start over? I wasn't listening. All right. <laughs> what do you think Christians need to learn from your experience working at the Defender Association? Now we're talking about the whole church, um, but then also, Get specific and talk about circle of hope. So, okay. So start with the big thing, and then we'll go to just us. Oh boy, um, Christians in general. Um, oh boy. Um, yeah, it's weird. Uh, Christians in general, like American Christians, are a mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, there's a lot. Okay, so let me think about this for a second. One thing I would think is, um, I guess just a very basic, like, God loves all people. And all people are people. And he sees them as whole people. Which, like, it seems so obvious to me. Um, but, yeah, like, all people are whole people with so much going on. Um, like nobody wakes up one day and decides to commit a crime. There is a history of mental illness, a history of trauma, a history of abuse. Um, sometimes all of those, sometimes one of those. Um, people are trying their best, generally. Um, and so this work has really helped me to, um, even on like a personal level, to see people who, um, have been like demonized by society. Um, it's important to remember that like they're the same. Like from a perspective of like God creating and loving them, they're like the same as you. Totally. Like there's no difference. And you would think Christians of all people would know that. You would think. Considering um, you know our Lord and Savior was overcharged to say the least, right? You know, got, got crucified. And the cross itself is a symbol of execution, kind of a satirized as a symbol of, uh, of, of, of worship for us. But we still miss that, even though we have this uh, um, story that we fully live into of injustice happening to you know, the savior of the world. Yeah, and Jesus was a person of color. And, and, <laughs> and 
Yeah. Talk, talk more then about specifically um, Circle of Hope. What, what, what do we need to learn from this? Um, or maybe what, what, what are, have you seen us learn from stuff like this? Um, I'm, I'm really encouraged by Circle um, because we do have a lot of impact in the community. I can't even count how many times recently I've just been in random like social interactions with people and they've mentioned Circle and I've been like, oh, that's my church. And they're like, I'm so curious about it. Like, what even is that? It's like, I see the signs, I know there's like a thrift store, and like, what is happening there? So we have a rep within that. There's group. like, it's like, cool. I've been at like parties where people are like raging, not me, of course. But, but it's like, and then like circle of hope like, will like come up, and there are no circle people there. Um, I don't know why I'm saying that. But I think my point is like. You feel encouraged by the word. We have, we have like, people talk about us, and we have, um, like stake in the community, which is why I was really happy to see that um, Mark Holden, and I forget who else came with him, did the participatory defense um, event. Because I remember actually being at the office and going to the, um, like the fifth floor conference room, which was nice and big, and they had everybody come in and were like explaining what it was. Um, and like we needed to go out into the neighborhoods and like equip people with the tools to um, like support their neighbors who were in legal trouble. Um, so that was really encouraging for starters um, that we are seeing because I had like no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. So that was just really cool to see like from the outside like oh the public defender the public defender's office saw Circle of Hope as like a hub to uh, manifest this. Yeah. And that's really cool. And um, we have a community of social workers too. A lot of them, right? Yeah. Like I, I can't spit and not hit one around here. Right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll spit at social workers. They can that. Yeah. that. Yeah, I was at the office and like Adam Facero came in and I was at the office and Bryce Hewlett came in. It's like I just see circle people all the time. Um, I was like, what? Hey. Because um, we're all like doing the same thing in different places. That's encouraging. Um, yeah, and it's very encouraging. Like we're very well represented in um, like the helping professions. <laughs> Well, thank you, Shelby, for uh, for the conversation. Um, let's clap again, Valerie. So let's open it up. Um, ask Shelby any question you want uh, within reason. Um, you know, try to keep it within the basic parameters of what we're talking about. I know some of you are friends with her and you might have personal questions to ask her. Just save that for later. Uh, let's keep it to the Defender Association. We have some time for that. <laughs> You're recording and raising your hand. Okay, I, I'm, I'm I just done. wanted Shelby to speak to something she had told me about uh, time and weather and, and that sort of uh, concept when you are um, in talking to your clients and you talk about waiting oh. and time. I know what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. I thought this was interesting. Um, I just, I, I mentioned to my mom once, um, when I go in for custody interviews, there's very small things um, with like procedural justice things where it's like, if you walk into a courtroom, um, the judge is higher, obviously, and that just sets the stage for what is happening. Um, so like, there are nuances um, to the way you interact with clients who are in custody, so um, I'm careful never to 
say like it's so hot out, it's so cold because it is like it's like a long walk. It's like you have to walk like a half mile to the women's prison from like the gate. Um, so sometimes I'll come in and you know I'll be sweaty or something. And I feel like I have to like explain, and then it's like no, I shouldn't be like complaining about how hot it is because like you're in here. Um, or like, oh, I had to wait so long for the train. It's like your entire life is waiting. Uh, so that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. So it really teaches you to be sensitive. To oh, yeah. Life. And even aware of the freedom that you have on the other side of that. Because mm -hmm. I get to leave when the conversation is done. And, it's, and a lot of times the clients are really, really sad when I leave. Um, and I'll ask them like, "How are you?" And they'll be, and they'll start crying. And be like, "Nobody's asked me how I am in like two mm -hmm. months." <laughs> um, so so you, you mentioned really do have the, Go ahead. I, I was just saying you mentioned that you had, you were waiting for someone, and they felt bad because it takes them so long to get to you. Um, and that, that whole the whole concept of time. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Another question. Yes. Um, I'll leave. You talked about. Thank you for sharing that. It was so informative. Um, informative. You talked about um, compartmentalization in the sense of not seeing somebody as what they're charged for, or even I'm sure as like history that you learned about them. They're not just that. They're not just what their hospital records say or something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. And I was kind of wondering how you, as a social worker and a professional, can see, like, you're obviously hearing their trauma, and, like, how you can not, that must be really, really hard. So kind yeah. of how you can not internalize that, or, like, have that reflect on you and the way you interact with them. Because, like, like I work with people, too, and that's something that is just, always kind of escapes me, like not trying to relate how I felt about a particular thing mm -hmm. with what they're going through with it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was kind of just wondering like, how do you avoid internalizing the trauma or how do you like, if you do something particularly difficult, how do you deal with it? So just so the recording hears this, how do you, the question here is how do you avoid internalizing uh, other, people's trauma. other people's trauma that you're working with? Yeah, it's super hard. Um, for now, I just, I, I don't know why I'm doing this on my own and it's like working, but just from the very beginning, I, I've just compartmentalized everything so much, which is not a long-term solution. Um, that's not gonna actually uh, pay off later. Um, but for now, <laughs> um, I, uh, it's like I engage with them um, and I'm like fully there. But it's like it's it's kind of like the information comes in and it like stays here and it doesn't come here, which is super hard for me because I'm really uh, like overly lovey. Like a client and I said I love you to each other over the phone the other day when we hung up and I was like, whoops. <laughs> um, because that violates something you're not supposed to say that. Well, I mean, she's like in her 80s. Um, she's really sweet. I don't know. And she was like, I love you, Shelly. And I was like, I love you too. And then I hung up the phone, um, and this person whose desk is next to mine was like, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was probably not good. Um, it is just so interesting how uh, sanitized the relationship can, uh, can seem to have to be. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm very careful about boundaries generally, um, but it can it can be hard if things start like bleeding over and there's there can be like countertransference and stuff like that. But um, I guess real quick, like for an example, I had a client um, who had a strangulation charge and he just had a lot of anger um, and he held so much anger like in his jaw he was like like the entire interview he was like. Um, and he was telling me about all the things that make him angry. And I was like, I'm gonna stop you right there. Um, I wanna start, I wanna create like a verbal contract with you right now that if I ever do anything to make you angry, which I might because I'm a human being and a lot of things make you angry. Um, <laughs> if, if, if I ever make you angry, I want you to like look me in the eye right now and make like a, an agreement with me that you're going to tell me um, so I'm aware and then we can go from there. Maybe we reschedule and you come back another time or you give me a chance to talk about it. You give yourself a chance to talk about it. I've been working a lot on like crying with him, like helping him like cry. And he's cried in front of me a couple of times, which is good because he's so angry. Um, what is it? Oh, boundaries. Um, like I said that like right up from the beginning, like this. Um, I also had to set some like suicide boundaries with him too. Mm. Like another like verbal contract, like I'll see you in two days. Don't kill yourself before I see you again. So you're hired now as a social services worker at the Defender Association, and soon you will have your master's in social work from Temple too, right? Mm -hmm. um, after that happens, you'll probably have a uh, supervision, which will help with this too. Yeah. What? Um, like someone to talk to about this. Uh, supervision hours. Do you have to log those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have um, <clears throat> something that's great about the office is it's very crowdsourcy. So, like, I have a particularly, con like, I'm in, like, a conundrum where it's like, oh, this is, like, m the Murphy's Law of people, to put it very, like, insensitively, where it's, like, everything about you, like, disqualifies you from placement. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, like, how do I... Um, work this out. And there are a lot of people on the unit who have been there for like 25 years. Um, there are people who have come from public defender's offices in other counties, so it's like they have connections there because sometimes um, your clients will have open matters in more than one county, so it's like you have to deal with their office as well. Um, so there's a lot of crowdsourcing going on. There is a lot of opportunity to learn from other people, so that's how it is now already where it's like I, I have a lot of supervision from like all sorts of people, not just my like direct Supervisor, and yeah, I was hired full time, which is a new development. Congratulations! Um, and so, um, yeah, my title is social services advocate because I'm not a social worker yet. I get my degree next May. Excellent. Couple more questions, Cecilia. How has this job affected how you relate to Jesus, your faith, even participation in the church? Is that fair to say? Because it's been a shift in career. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about babies again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just telling somebody, Jamie, actually, yesterday, maybe the day before, about 
how um, I'm really bad at being in the present. I'm almost exclusively in the past and future, and kids are really good for getting you out of that because you have to be in the present. Like I take, you know, the youngest is not even three yet, and we went to the pool like every single day. So it's like you need to not drown. We are in the pool together, and you don't have floaties. So it's like you have to be like there are what's happening to you. Um, and it's like harder without kids. Kids really bring you into the present. And so with adults, um, they bring you into the present too because you know when you're in a situation with them, um, like I had a client who was in active psychosis and was also on Molly and he was like, I had to take, I had to like put him in a cab like with me and like take him to a crisis response center. Um, so like there are, there are times when I have to be like very on and very present, but it's so much easier with kids. And I think kids are such a reflection of God to me. And I, and I feel very close to God when I'm interacting with kids and like looking in their eyes and stuff because it's like this weird, like they really see you for real and you're like, I'm getting stage right um, from this conversation we're having because you like are actually talking to me and not at me. Um, so I think it maybe is like harder um, but it's really cool, like I said, to um, engage with like other people from Circle and have like coworkers who are adults for the first time in five years. Um, um, yeah, so that, that sense of community is helpful, I think. Um, and I really do feel like I'm doing like God's work. <laughs> like I'm doing like the good, I'm doing like the right thing. Like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm like actively changing people's lives. Yeah. Which is like kind of crazy. I agree. Thanks. Charles? Okay. I have two, but one is really quick. Explain you have two. No, explain the difference between prison and a jail first. Okay. And then um, probably kind of on the flip side of that, like how do you, how does like God work or like the scriptures like inform what you do for the um, defenders association like because I see you know just like Jesus care for the least of things I feel like that's what you're doing so how exactly does it like inform like what you do or how you uh, how you come into uh, the work you do every day so what's the difference between a jail and a prison and how does God inform and how does the Bible inform what you do so, first question. Um, prisons are federally funded and jails are not as much. They are um, within, the within the municipality that they exist. Um, and jails are county holding facilities and prisons are state um, holding facilities. So like, there are some clients who are like upstate in like the state facility and most of the clients are in the jails, which are in the Northeast. So, um, like clients can switch up, like they can be like um, escalated, like they can be in a jail and then go to a prison, um, depending on what happens with their case. Does that make sense? Somewhat, yes. So like, the, like there are people at my job who go to like the prison, like the prison, 
Um, but most of the time when we're just dealing with our clients, we're at the jails, which is like a campus of jails all on State Road. Oh, um, but we kind of use the terms prison and jail interchangeably um, because it's, it's still called like the, the Philadelphia Department of Prisons. Um, yeah. Um, and then the other question is, how does God inform your work? How does the Bible also inform your work? Yeah, I love how you quoted Matthew 25, 40, and I only know what it is because it's the only verse I memorized in Sunday school. <laughs> it's a good verse. <laughs> like, you just happened to get it. So it's like, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and mine, you did for me. I remember walking around a circle with high heels and like, heel, toe, heel, toe. Um, I, high heels is just a really big deal. Um, yeah, so what I'm thinking about is like, going to this vigil a year or two ago um, when these incidences of police brutality were at a peak. Um, and Shane Claiborne had um, like a anti-death penalty vigil um, that I participated in on, um, whatever that church is. Is that on Arch Street? Yeah. Is that church? Anyway. Um, Our street Methodist. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting because, you know, I was there and they were talking about how, you know, death row is a racist, like, part of an already racist institution. Like, people with money just aren't on death row. People who. Um, are white generally just aren't on death row because they can like buy themselves out and like I have clients who are sitting on five hundred dollars bail. So imagine every single person in your life can't pull together five hundred dollars um, because you can pay ten percent of your bail. So if like your bail is five thousand, you can only pay five hundred. Is that right now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. what I thought. But then I got self-conscious. We only pay ten ten percent of your bail to get out, or like. Just 10% of your bail just to get out. You still have to pay the rest. You have like a balance. Okay. Um, but you can pay $500 to be released. And there are clients who are being held just on that $500. Um, what'd you say? And then so it would be the 50? No, like 500 is the 10%. The whole bill is 5,000. Yeah. They're being held just because they can't pay 500. Which is like, if one of us was in jail, we'd like very easily be able to get $500 in this community, you know what I mean? So imagine like every single person you know can't like yep. add up $500. I remember how to do that. That's um, how we end money bill. I know, it's a, it's a huge problem obviously, but um, yeah, it's, the system itself is, is classist and racist and um, I feel, especially after having um, participated in that a couple of years ago, um, that it really is like God's work because the whole like um, eye for an eye thing doesn't make sense. Like we should kill you because you killed someone like literally makes no sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel really strongly about that, especially because I remember there was a mother there who is like an anti-death penalty advocate who like lobbies um, and 
her daughter was raped and her daughter's rapist was on death row and she like fought to get him off of death row which is some christian stuff <laughs> that is some like very christian stuff so you can say christian shit okay <laughs> um so yeah so i think about that too where it's like nobody's past the point of redemption. It's an important witness to even hear a Christian say that oh, Jesus actually informed how I think about this mm -hmm. um, and didn't make me uh, and, and, and increase the grace that I have for people. Um, it's a real Christian kind of basic message. So, thank you. How about one more? Bryant. No, two more. Um, yeah, I was at the meeting about participatory defense. It was really great to see that we're doing something, but I left kind of wondering, like, how does this interact with Shelby's world? Like, I don't, I, I kind of didn't understand how the participatory defense thing, uh, like, if I wanted to get involved, like, what that looked like. I don't know if you know anything about that. If not, we can. If you wanted to get involved with what? The participatory defense hub in South Philly. Uh huh. Um, like, how does that help what you're doing? Like, uh, do, I don't know how that interacts with, like, your office, and then, like, mm -hmm. also how could we get involved if we care about that? Okay. <laughs> so, for starters, I'm not entirely sure how you get involved as, like, a circle of a person. Like, I don't know what, like, the sign-up process is or whatever, or how you, like, put yourself in that team or something. Um, but generally speaking, um, basically, so... Kind of like what I was saying, where it's like somebody could be hold, somebody could be held on as little as five hundred dollars, or somebody could um, just need help in terms of like navigating the system because it's intentionally complicated and doesn't make sense. Um, so, like legalese is a completely different language. Like, I remember my very first day at the office, I was in juvenile court for like four hours, and I was like, everybody's speaking in exclusively acronyms. Like, I had no idea what anything means, because it's like just uppercase letters and like no words. Um, so another part of that is like pooling resources and like research to be able to like educate um, ourselves enough to like help each other so that we're not like in these positions where we're being taken advantage of. So kind of what I was saying before, which is really cool, is apparently the Public Defender's Office saw Circlephobe as a sort of hub um, and like stakeholder in the community of like, you know, people who are in South Philly who are like neighbors of this congregation can come here and have like a like layman, layperson, um, like resource pool. Um, in addition to like free or um, like, it's, it's actually basically all free, like legal counsel. Thanks, one more. Um, talk a little bit about, and since you know, you grew up in my household, we've talked about this in the past, but this sort of might be helpful to somebody else. So how does prayer come in? to help you, guide you, mold you through all these changes you've been going through. God's given us that gift. 
So practically speaking, how does that work? How does prayer yeah. impact your work? Oh boy. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a really good question. Um, let me think about it for just one second. Um, so I've been thinking a lot recently about whatever that prayer is or verse that's like, the will of God will never lead you or the grace of God cannot keep you or something along those lines. Um, and I've had like a super rough year, super rough. Um, and I've caught myself thinking like, how, like this is, <laughs> LOL. That's dad's um, phone right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I caught myself being like, how, like this is an unacceptable amount of stress for one person. Mm. Um, like how am I supposed to do this? This doesn't even make sense. You really answered it. Yeah, super stressful. Yeah. You're more stressed than any one person should endure. Yeah, and so I, I catch myself being like, the will of grace, no, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And I'm like, yeah, right. Um, but through prayer, I think that really helps for me to like, because I think it's easy to like assume what God is thinking when I could just like talk to her myself. Mm. <laughs> and then that would be better than assuming. <laughs> um, not like you always hear it very clearly, but um, I feel like prayer is helpful in being like, no, seriously, what's the deal? Like, why do I have all this? This is like too much. Um, and in terms of the work, um, I think it's helpful because um, I'm like perfectly poised at this specific time in my life to be like ready to do this. Um, like I said, because of you know the nature of the work and um, just my personal experiences and my personal trauma and like the people I work with, um, you know I've kind of protected myself throughout my life and. I'm at a place where like my brain and my body are like, you can do this. Like we're bringing you forth into like this new chapter. And it's like, if I couldn't do it, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Like if like things that I kept for myself for decades or you know, things I stopped myself from pursuing because of fear for decades and then it's like I'm doing it now so like I must be ready or else I wouldn't be doing it like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing and um that's all like part of prayer because I think prayer is like an ongoing conversation that can happen even when you're not saying a prayer right cool so I think I think I think we'll conclude with that there's more questions you could ask, and I think Shelby will be around after if you want to talk more. So thanks for the sustained attention here. Uh, one more round of applause, please. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.